I should have told the story about uh, with Jose Ferrar when he was, uh, was directing Lou, 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 Pedro's play. Uh, Pedro said to him, hey, I read about you last night in a book. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, really? What was that? And it was, uh, geez, I can't remember what, it, what the, the, it was about the McCarthy hearings where Ferrar. <laughs> oh, that was great. But it was a terrific play, a terrific play. Also, uh, Live Tonight, Your Mother by Pedro Pietri and Nobody Else. Anyway, here we are. That's over. Welcome to the Poetry Project. Second sets. Late nighters are here now. Cookie Mueller, and I quote, has been writing ever since she could hold a pencil. Her first novel, a lengthy 362 pages, written at age 11, was never published, but still collects dust in a shoebox in her mother's closet in Baltimore. Balmer, sorry. She has published tales of her psychedelic past and future, and about her readings, the New Yorker has said, it was fabulous. And it was. Okay. Um, Cookie will next be appearing uh, in Edgar Allen, a story of a, a performance piece about Poe, in uh, opening March 12th at DTW, uh, written by and to be uh, written by Cookie Mueller at at all. She is currently writing novels for people with short attention spans. Cookie Mueller. Okay, the first thing that I'm going to read is uh, called A Typical Day in Manhattan. And this is kind of, well, it's written like sort of after a hangover and stuff. Okay. And it says I was woke up with a slight hangover. Anyway, woke up with a slight hangover at 7.30 and got Max to school. I went back to sleep and got up at 11. The horrible food smells from the hallway were already wasting under the door jams. I went to the bathroom and turned on the light. Scurrying off the white porcelain tub and tiles were a family of albino roaches. I figured that these were a new breed, a modern lineage of roaches that through evolution had adapted to a white environment. I went to the kitchen where the unevolved black roaches, brown roaches were. From the street, I could hear the usual banter, people yelling out, fuck you, at each other. There was a guy on the street under my window yelling, portable exercise for sale. And he was in this strange contraption. There was a bag man, lunatic, on the corner calling out things like fashion, mistake, at all the women who passed by. <laughs> and he was right about most of them. And I could tell he had a good sense of a good fashion sense from the fantasy peasant-wrapped look he was sporting. <laughs> I went to the bank with my dog. It began to rain a little, and I remembered that blues singers had told me that the sky cries on certain days and that the tears rolled down the street and saw how true it was on this very day. 
I wish it would rain harder so the disguised tears would wash away some of the wine I was asleep on the sidewalk. Seeing these people made me realize the reason why I always dress well when going out alone in Manhattan. One has to dress in their most expensive clothes in case you faint or have a heart attack so that people won't mistake you for one of those people while you're laying there. Now, at least you have to wear fashionable shoes so that someone will stop to help you. I got to the bank and brought my little dog in. I was next in line, behind an old lady in black. She had a hairnet. She was doing her transaction with the teller, and I was filling out a withdrawal slip. When she moved away, I began to approach the teller, but the people who were in the other lines grabbed me so I couldn't move. Don't step in that, they said, and pointed to a large pile of loose fecal matter that I was about to step in. It was right where the old lady, had, the old lady had been standing. Of course, I began to beat my dog, who must have done it. But the people in the lines who had seen the whole business said, no, it wasn't your dog. It was the little old lady in black. That woman just made herself a nice deposit while she was making a withdrawal. <laughs> <coughs> That's true, too. That really happened. On the way to the grocery store, I, call, I saw a couple kissing on the street. What could these people possibly have to kiss about? <laughs> I'm positive that these couples that you see on the streets in the parks and subway stations, laundromats, are paid to kiss. The I love New York button and bumper sticker people pay these people to act like they're in love in order to promote tourism. <laughs> in the grocery store, there were some serious shoppers, and I had to fight my way to the bargains and scramble for an advantageous position in the checkout line. After everything was bagged up, I went back for an avocado, and while I was in the vegetable area, someone walked off with my groceries. Back out on the street, there was a crowd standing around two people fighting, while in the scope of the background, a massive car collision was going on. The ambulances that came in a few minutes hit two people that were casually crossing the street. Once again, I was reminded of Bombay and overpopulation. Walking down Christopher Street, I realized that there was a god who, in creating queers, had, in, in his all-seeing kind of way, had actually was planning long-term birth control measures. I ran to a rehearsal where all my fellow actors were screaming at each other about what they were going to wear in the opening scene. Next, I went to a meeting with a TV producer who was interested in writing a new wave soap opera. Then I went to an audition and was crowded with women who looked exactly like each other. They all smiled too much. Next, I went to see a casting agent who thought it was a porno star. Then I ran to the city bank to get subway fared to get home. In the bank line, I had a vicious fight with a man who thought he was first. <coughs> and there was also a man in there with long hair waiting beside the cash machine who was selling perfume and knives. <laughs> and when no one bought anything, he asked for any spare dollar bills we had. On the, subway train, uh, on the subway home, the train derailed, and a few people were injured. This happened to me yesterday, as a matter of fact. And a few people were injured. But the ones who weren't injured had no sympathy. They just kept yelling at the conductor about how late they were <laughs> and how late they were going to be for their movies or dinners or dates. Ironically, the only thing I had to read while sitting stuck underground in this tomb between stations for an hour and a half was Poe's story, The Premature Burial. When I got home, I found Max, my son, who's sitting right there, playing Monopoly with, the young, rep with young representatives in the League of Nations. There were Indian children and Korean children represented mostly. By the time the game was over, Max fell asleep, and I went to an opening, and then went to a party, and then went to another party. It was about 5 in the morning, and I had some writing to do, so I left. When I got home and went to the bathroom, there were the albino roaches again. 
There was one having such a hard time defying gravity, walking up the slippery white tiles. I wondered if this, if this bird could sing, what song would it be? All my trials, Lord, soon will be over. That's the end of that. <clears throat> okay, now, since this is, um... Oh, wait a minute, I'm going to read this other one first. Okay, this is, this is, um... I got inspiration from this one from working in these kind of bars and after hours bar that I worked in once. I only worked there for a week and I quit and it was lucky that I quit because the next night a uh, person got shot in the head and then after that five pe five, one person was riddled with five bullets. Anyway, this I got inspiration. I got inspiration from that bar to write this piece. Okay, this is called Dora or um, Bar None. How many people recognized in Dora that she was an aristocrat wasn't certain. In her veins ran the cold purple blood that gave her hair and eyes a pale eggplant tinge. She was always being harassed by people who were unlike her, the unremarkable middle class. She thought of herself as a philanthropist. Her benevolence to the masses made her seek pursuits such as bartending and go-go dancing. Her last job had been at Joe Yuck's after hours place, where she stood behind a makeshift fiberglass bar. The surface was all pitted and stained from the stiffness of the drinks that she slammed down. The place smelled like decaying, diseased sponges, and the only time the place looked good was when there were no lights. She was kind to these customers, who would tell her in greatest detail each moment of their sordid existences. What they told her, she recorded in her diary of the monster with many heads that she was keeping, which told of his charitable work among the peons. She knew that these people less fortunate and devoid of culture needed some kind of inner healing. As a go-go dancer in other bars, she had danced her way into many a sick heart. She knew in their flabby minds she represented a human tonic that cured arthritis, insomnia, melancholia, a whole range of diseases and game limbs all the amounts of gold chains and dimey pinky, diamond pinky rings that flashed in the mirror disco balls couldn't hide the fact that these people were culturally and morally bankrupt. All the cat teeth and hair pieces belied their broken bodies. Most of the people in the after-hours bar were thieves and boosters, pimps, porno moguls, hitmen, rapists, numbers runners, but most were ordinary liars, drawn together by the threads of affliction. One morning, around 5 a.m., a man named Delicious came into the bar. He said he'd had the flu for three months and just couldn't get better. Dora asked him a few questions, gave him a double scotch, and held his hand for a bit while looking into him with watery eyes. He was cured. On the same morning, another man came in at about 7 a.m., who said he had just had a 14-pound cancerous tumor removed, and he still couldn't walk correctly. She gave him a Harvey's Bristol cream on ice, and he took her hand and and as she turned to give him the change, miraculously, he could walk. People came in all morning until 10 a.m. with problems, and she unwittingly helped them. She had no idea how she did it. Soon, word spread that there was a healer at Joe Yuck's after-hours bar. They said Dora walked with angels. There was no advertising or even a sign on the door, so it was astonishing that the place became as popular as it did. From that one morning on, the place was always crowded with unfortunates of every variety. The blind, the poor, the overworked, the crippled, the batty, 
they all came. There were more people waiting online at Joe Yuck than there were at Lourdes in France. It was the Baden-Baden for bums. Before long, the management had to hire doormen and use velvet ropes to keep out the people who were in better shape. Of course, there were always a few people who feigned disease or faked a limp or dressed like bag people in order to get in, but the doormen were astute and the phonies really got as far as the coat check room. Dora became a goddess of sorts, a Florence Nightingale or a St. Bernadette. She'd found her calling in life, the beatified bartender, the saint of Joe Yuck. because it's Christmas, or it's going to be Christmas, and I have to get into Christmas because I have a kid, you know, otherwise I don't know if I'd even celebrate it. Anyway, um, and I, you know, I was sort of raised on this, on this story of the gift of the Magi by O. Henry, like it was my father's favorite writer, so I had to hear it ad nauseum every Christmas. You, you know the story, right? The, the, you know, everybody knows the story. The woman had to sell her long, beautiful hair in order to buy her husband a, wa a platinum watch fob, and he had meanwhile had pawned his his watch to buy her comb tortoiseshell combs for her hair, right? And uh, O. Henry says the story is wa is uh, resolved by telling us that these people, and unwisely sacrificing their greatest treasures, had really been the wisest givers ever. Okay, so I just I just decided to write some write some uh, modern versions of this classic story. Okay. And the first one is about Mary Lou and Bob. Mary Lou and Bob lived in Patterson, New Jersey. Bob had been recently laid off at the Ford plant, so they were living on unemployment and having a rough time taking a mortgage on a two-bedroom formstone house. They had already spent a couple of hundred dollars on the kids' toys for Christmas, but Mary Lou had only $15 to buy Bob anything. She thought of selling something, but she really didn't own anything of value because she was a simple woman who didn't wear jewelry or furs. The only thing she owned of any worth was her cuisine art food processor. <laughs> she remembered that her next-door neighbor had always admired that food processor. So Mary Lou took the food processor next door under her arm and offered it to Betty, the housewife. Betty said, well, you know, Adele, the thing isn't new. You'll have to give it to me for less than it's worth. Okay, said Mary, Mary Lou, I'll throw in the toaster oven for $200. Well, okay, said Betty, and she wrote out the check. The minute Mary Lou cast the check, she bought $200 worth of tape cassettes, the complete works of the Iron Butterfly, Black Sabbath, Moody Blue, Deep Purple, Tom Jones, and Wade Newton, for her husband, Bob's Sony Walkman. <laughs> Little did she know that the night before, Bob sold his Sony Walkman and all the tapes to a friend. With the money, he went to Bamberger's, and bought a deluxe mincer and freezer attachment for Mary Lou's cuisine art. <laughs> so on Christmas morning, when the mistake was realized, they were so upset. <laughs> and they tried to mask their disappointment to each other and the children. There was only one thing that brought them any real happiness that morning, and that was the joy of playing Space Invaders on the home Atari television game that they bought for the children. Okay, the next modern version is the story of Lola and Tony. <laughs> they lived in a two-bedroom apartment in a tenement building on East 6th Street between 1st and A. 
and they were so broke, but they still felt Mac. They still felt <laughs> that they had to give each other something for Christmas. Tony was a musician, and Lola was an aspiring actress, long out of work. The only money she had made in the past six months was for a job she did posing nude on the cover of Juicy magazine with her legs spread, suggestively holding a gigantic rubber hose. This was the first porno work she had ever done. The magazine hadn't been distributed to the stands yet. In fact, the final printing hadn't even been done. But she was anticipating it on the stands, and she was weeping for months every day about it. She had to make some money fast now so that she could get a present for Tony. So out of desperation, she found an ad in Screw Magazine asking for actresses for a porno movie. So she went to see the casting director, got the lead, and shot the film in four days. With the money, she bought Tony a new saxophone case and went to the street a little east of her neighborhood, neighborhood and bought him about $300 worth of heroin and cocaine. Meanwhile, Tony was pawning his saxophone and selling his glass and sterling silver set of work. The, this syringe was, used to be his grandfather's, and his grandfather was a doctor. And it was a special set, and it included in a, in a little velvet box. These, these really, these, these, this was actual, um, really true that the people did have doctors used to have these syringes that were sterling silver. Anyway, it had, a, um, had sterling silver points and, uh, and a point cleaner, and it also had a pair of gold prongs for removing and replacing the points. Now, with the money, he went to the editors of Juicy Magazine, slipped them some money to run someone else's picture on the cover. Now Lola could start fresh, he thought. <laughs> on Christmas Day, when they woke up around 3 in the afternoon, and she gave him the saxophone case and the dope and the coke, and he didn't have the saxophone to put into the case or any work to shoot the drugs with, he was really sad. She was happy that he had taken care of replacing her picture on the cover of the magazine, but... Her career would now be ruined when the film that she starred in, the porno film that she starred in, would open on Times Square. So they walked around the apartment moping for a bit until they remembered all the drugs they had for Christmas, thus easing their depression by snorting them all up in one day and into the hours of the next dawn. Okay, the next one is the Adele and John story. They were both struggling artists. John, a painter, Adele, a filmmaker. Of course, they wanted to give each other great gifts for Christmas, so John sold his lease on the studio space where he painted. With the money, he bought time in an editing lab for his girlfriend, Adele, to finish her sensitive, low-budget narrative film. <laughs> Meanwhile, Adele had been shooting some scenes of people being hacked up with meat cleavers and chainsaws and spliced them sloppily into the film and sold it as a blood and guts exploitation shocker film. The money enabled her to buy rolls and rolls of canvases and all hues of oil paint that he was never able to afford. On Christmas Day, when they realized that each one had sacrificed their art for the other, they both sunk into the deepest depression. <laughs> and the only thing that made these two happy was the knowledge that miraculously they still liked each other despite the fact that now Neither one of them had a career. <laughs> they, they talked it over, and they both discovered that they both hated art anyway. And it was too much like being in a desert with mirages that kept disappearing. So they decided to get menial jobs and get fat and throw parties all the time. <laughs> That's the end of that.
another Christmas story, and it's uh, Provincetown, it, when I lived in Provincetown, 1970. Okay. It was December, and all the money spenders, those tourists, were gone. They had all disappeared at the end of the summer, and the town was quiet. But with the tranquility came poverty, and the town's exposed underbelly. All 10,000 people in Provincetown were on unemployment in the winter. There were seven of us that lived in that clapboard house that had been great in the summer. And this is a true story, by the way. But now the wind rip, ripped through the shabby insulation and the toilet was frozen. And we could see our breath in, the va in vapor. We crowded together around the vines, steaming dishes of pasta in the kitchen, the only warm room. Like the rest of the town, we were on unemployment and food stamps, and we were always broke and skinny, except, of course, for the vine. We drank copious amounts of Jack Daniels to keep warm and stay happy. There was one bleak day with nothing to cheer us up, so Divine, resourceful as always in a pinch, left the house in a blizzard with a TV set under his arm and traded it for an ounce of grass and two bottles of wild turkey. <laughs> we cooked a lot that winter, too. Well, Divine got us into it. We took daily trips to the town dump in the station wagon and searched for good stuff, clothes, shoes, nice furniture, appliances. I remember Devine standing in his full-length mink coat on top of tremendous mountains of garbage, his head sort of crowned with circling, screeching seagulls. Louise always found the best stuff. She was one of the roommates who was showing alarming signs of losing her mind. Secret messages on TV directed only to her, acute insomnia, a preoccupation with strangers who didn't exist. But she had had 18 other nervous breakdowns in former years, so this was nothing new. One day, returning from a night away, I found everyone sitting around the kitchen in appalling gloom, wearing the living room and bedroom curtains, watching feebly while Louise cut up her own clothes this time. All night, Louise had been cutting up everybody's clothes into little scraps while they slept. I was the only one left with a set of clothes. All dressed in curtains and blankets, we took her to the Taunton Mental Hospital in Rhode Island, and she was admitted and dressed in a clean white hospital outfit and ushered into warmth and medication. Seeing this, we were all pretty jealous. <laughs> this, this is a rough year, I'll tell you. I accidentally got a job, working two days a week as a sort of a housekeeper. The house, luckily, was spacious and warm with all kinds of food and liquor and a huge stereo, washers, dryers, color TV sets. The only real problem was Wendy, the wife, who was there most of the time, but stayed in bed around the clock, lying in her own slab, with candy bar wrappers and empty peach brandy bottles clustered around her body like decoration. Her legs were inert and crippled from an accident in Mexico when Chris, her husband, haphazardly ran over her legs with their Volkswagen camper. I felt sorry for her, but Chris told me that it was, n that it was no longer physiological. I cleaned around her body while she slept, and one day found some surprising photographs of Wendy and Chris. There was Wendy, naked, holding exaggerated bowling pins. <laughs> and there was Wendy inserting the exaggerated bowling pins. Inert legs spread eagle. 
There were pictures of Chris trying to stick raw eggs into himself without breaking them, and I only know that they were raw because I didn't think from the pictures that he ever succeeded. <laughs> this was blackmail material for sure. Could I do it? Oh, of course not. Anyway, <laughs> I couldn't think of anybody who would care enough to expose these pictures. Because of these pictures, I was expecting anything from then on, and one day while relining the stove with tinfoil, Wendy called me up into her bedroom. I sat on the edge of the bed, and she was pretty lukewarm with peach brandy. Cookie, she said, you might as well know that Chris and I aren't getting along too well. <laughs> as if I cared. I know it's deeper, but I think it's my legs. Can you help us put our marriage back together? Sure, what can I do? Well, it might not make sense to you, but if you could stay here tonight and sleep with both of us, maybe he would begin to make love with me again. It's been so long. Oh, I know it would work, please. And I, I told her, oh, I would think it over for the rest of the afternoon. But I already, in my mind, knew that I couldn't. First of all, they just weren't my style. And anyway, $3 an hour just wasn't enough <laughs> for an upstairs maid. Now, Christmas was drawing near, and at home, poverty made us mutually cheerless, except, of course, for Divine, who didn't seem in the least unhappy. We decided we would have a huge Christmas party, a buffet dinner for 60. Even Louise might get out of the hospital for the day. It looked like we were going to have to sharpen some dull, thievery talons. We ordered crown roasts of lamb and bought vegetables and pie and cookie supplies with our Christmas bonus food stamps, and we sold all the liquor, completely cleaning out a store in the course of three days. The money went for oil to heat the house, and then, not having enough left to even buy the tree, Divine and I, this was so hilarious, this is true, Divine and I went out two nights before the party looking at scrub pines in the woods. None of them were acceptable, but we found a symmetrically perfect blue spruce on a neighbor's front lawn. <laughs> so we sawed it down around four in the morning in dark clothing lying on our stomachs under the tree in the snow. <laughs> and we sold some lights off some bushes on another lawn and had to go back for another string because the tree was so nice and bushy that it needed extra light. The tree was really pretty after everything was on it, and there were presents under it that were taken from a dump and wrapped up. Some of the presents were stolen from a large variety store. We knew the owner to be a crook, so it was sort of a political holiday action on our part. The party turned out so well, and everyone was so happy and stuffed and said there had never been another like it. And believe it or not, only one of us had to go to jail. <laughs> Okay, now I wasn't going to do this, but I think I will now because it's a friendly little crowd here. So, um, but I'm not going to I'm not going to put on my wig or anything for this. <laughs> okay, okay. See, I this 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 has to be this is like a different person. This is um, I wrote this originally as a little skit that I did. Um, couple weeks ago at this place. And this is all... <clears throat> okay, now I have to become this nutritionist now. Just imagine me as this woman named Rosemary Tangholt. And I'm a nutritionist. But I'm not going to do it with the wig on. <clears throat> okay, my name is Rosemary Tangholt, and I'm a nutritionist. I've studied with all the great nutritionists, the beauty experts, Gaylord Hauser, Adele Davis, 
Gloria Swanson, Shelley Winters, Bobby Sands, Truman Capote. You may know me from my column in this nutrition newspaper, The Chief, The Civil Eaters Weekly. <laughs> Civilized diets. Now, the headlines are interesting. So you have lips for city police officer. <laughs> now, this happened when this police officer was on a special call, and he um, had his lips blown off because because he was siphoning gas, he ran out of gas on a special car, and his lips blown off because he was—he forgot to take the cigarette out of his mouth <laughs> while he was siphoning the gas. <laughs> now this other one here, ape cocoons fit for food. This is about—they found that giant African apes, the nests of giant African apes, because they make nests out of you know their plant trees and stuff. That th not only are they um, nutritious but they're a source of um, high, pro not only are they fit for food, but they're a source of high protein and low carbohydrates. Okay, now people write to me all the time with these nutritional questions and I answer them the best I can. <coughs> Here's one letter. It's from, it was from a very rich lady. She said, Dear Rosemary, I'm very delicate. Sometimes I even get cashmere rashes. <laughs> I go to orifice exercise classes to tighten up all my holes, but it hasn't helped. I can't seem to keep any food down. The only thing my body craves are fine wines and cocaine. Is this healthy? What can I do to get myself to eat? And I answered her, Rich girl, you don't know how lucky you are. Vintage wines and cocaine? Well, I'm lucky if I get cold duck and dexatrim. Just start eating a little at first. Chop up your fresh foods with a razor blade and see if that works. <laughs> Another person wrote and said, Rosemary, I'm the man who wrote the book Black Like Me. Everybody remembers that book, right? It was about the guy who did, he put dye on his skin and he went around and pretended he was black and see how much discrimination he could get, and then wrote a book about it. My publisher asked me if I was interested in doing another book on a controversial topic, one dealing with the discrimination of homosexuals. This book would be called Queer Like Me. <laughs> <coughs> so I've been taking injections of female hormones, or estrogen, and getting on buses in ladies' clothes. I have been experiencing a degree of discrimination in most areas of the country, although Little, not very much, in New York City and in San Francisco. Now that the research, research section of the book is over, I seem to be caught in some sort of limbo netherworld of androgyny. And even with androgen injections, these are the male hormone injections, I can't seem to look like a man again. Help me. What can I eat to make me look like a man once more? Now, I was pretty stumped on this one. <clears throat> but then I came up with only one idea, and I wrote, take large quantities of inositol for facial hair growth, and while you're at it, drink a carton of beer every day to reacquire a large beer belly. Then I got a letter from an older woman who wrote, Dear Rosemary, I'm the grandmother of a 13-year-old girl named Charlene who has a few problems, nothing too serious. A few days ago, she murdered a classmate in the seventh grade spelling class. 
Charlene stabbed her with one of those nice papermate pens in a fight over a bottle of cheap perfume. She wrecked the pen. But Charlene is really such a nice girl, so I've been hiding her here in my home. She won't eat anything, though. I put one or two beans on her plate, but she won't eat them. She always puts the dirty dishes back in the cabinet unwashed. Do you think the thing that happened in school could be affecting her? Or maybe she doesn't like beans. She's really getting on my nerves. Should I keep trying to get her to eat the beans? And what kind of shampoo should she use? And I, this, that was an actual story, as a matter of fact, from a Baltimore newspaper. I wrote back telling her first to buy the girl the cheapest bottle of perfume she could find and then try feeding her some potatoes, nature's tranquilizer. Forget about the beans. That could be the problem right there. And the next letter I got was a little odd. There's a man who wrote. He said, Rosemary, I'm, since I'm made out of 80% water, it's clear that I was part of the iceberg that sank the Titanic. <laughs> I was also part of the grape Kool-Aid mixture that was drunk in Jonestown, Guyana. I'm also the rain that falls on the plants you eat. What should I do? What's wrong with me? <laughs> I didn't know what to say to him, but I wrote back and I said, it sounded like he had pneumonia to me and that he should take mega doses of vitamin C and stay in bed, but cut down on the liquids. <laughs> Love, Rosemary Tangholm. And that's the end of that.